Hello there and welcome, welcome, welcome. I'm Sarah from Sarah Ferruya Coaching and this is the Legends Podcast. I believe there are many, many ways to lead a life and everybody has stories and I want to tell them and share them. These legends are a collection of people who I have found during my 20 years in Tokyo and before. All of them are brilliant people. And when I became bored with reading another billionaire's biography, I thought I want to tell the stories of the people who I meet who are absolutely fascinating, but you won't see on your regular podcast interview. They have overcome obstacles, both systemic and internal, and we cover all kinds of things from creativity, grief, racism, business, disaster, loss, trolling, infertility, farming, eating disorder, eco-feminism, and more. We have elite athletes, people who live on Zen temples in remote parts of Japan, BBC newscaster to Taekwondo champion. Please enjoy these amazing stories from what they've overcome, from what they've built, from what they've created, from the way that they talk. I'm just delighted thinking about it. So please get stuck in and enjoy this next legend. Hello, everybody, and welcome, welcome, welcome to this The Legends podcast season five, my very fucking creative season. Um, today, I am welcoming a dear old friend, Neil Young. Hi, Neil. Hello, Sarah. <laughs> For How anybody who was expecting the old rocker, <laughs> sorry about it. <laughs> sorry, yeah. you get mistaken very often <laughs> for the other one. <laughs> oh, brilliant. So I believe there are many ways to lead a life and everybody has stories and I want to tell them and hear them and share them with you. So today we have so many great stories to tell between us, but I'm going to hand over to Neil now and ask him, Neil, can you tell us a story that's had an impact or an influence on you? Well, I tell you what, an interesting story is how I got into makeup because I, um, I was a hairdresser at the time. And I was doing a hair show in London and it was in the 90s. And in the 90s, models would carry their own makeup with them. Anyway, the makeup artist that was booked for this show that we were doing in, in London, I think it's like the Apollo, Apollo, Hammersmith Apollo, something like that. The makeup artist didn't turn up. So at the final hour, I was like, well, I'll do it. I'll, I can do a bit of makeup. And I had no training. I didn't know what, really know what I was doing, but I just did this makeup. And... Um, Umberto, who was the, the salon owner, he absolutely hated it. He was like, what's this? Make-? I was like, well, look, it's, it is what it is. <laughs> and I remember it was all white around the eye and they were quite tan, the models. And he was like, what is this? Anyway, the show went on. A big hairdresser at the time came backstage and was like, absolutely awesome to Umberto. That was incredible. The makeup was fantastic. And my <laughs> salon owner, Umberto, was like, oh, yeah, 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 it was my... Um, it was my stylist, Neil, he did it, you know, and he was like arm around my shoulder going, yeah, he did a brilliant job. I was thinking, well, you didn't say that five minutes ago. And anyway, that's actually the reason I got into makeup because on the way home in the car, everyone was saying to me, you should be a makeup artist. I think you've actually got a real knack for makeup. And I thought to myself, do you know what? I think I don't actually love, I think I really love makeup and I want to ditch the hair and I did. And I literally ditched the hair world two weeks later and embarked on a, a makeup career. And that's actually how it happened. It was completely by default. I never expected to be a makeup artist, never was interested. I mean, I always was interested in it, but I never really thought that would be a, a, a career I'd have. But yeah, that's how, I, that's how I got into it, by default. Amazing. 
Love it, love it, love it. It's so interesting because in fact, I was interviewing somebody yesterday. There's in coaching, there's something we call planned happenstance, which is kind of a, a career style of doing things where it, you have to be kind of ready and willing and psychologically ready for just things that happen to come past you by happenstance. Yeah. And it's exactly what you just described there, that kind of that readiness, that willingness, that like have a go attitudes, that confidence to be ready mm. to allow whatever comes in to come in and then be like, right, mm. that's it. I'm going to do this. And do you remember what year yeah. that was, Neil? God, I think it was about um, it was late 90s. It was about 98, I think, something like that. It was the t- it was around the time that I was working with you with me yeah because I was hairdressing at the time yeah you know I did the I did the shifts in the evening night and sometimes the day shifts and whatever and I was hairdressing as well at that time yeah but I think I think I was on my own I don't think I was uh, no I, of course I was in uh, Umberto Giannini the salon at the time and um and working with you yeah and that's when I transitioned into and then I left the restaurant and ended up becoming doing makeup full time yeah. I remember getting a job at Bobby Brown. That was like the late 90s because Bobby Brown Massive. makeup had just come into the UK. Yeah. yeah. Bobby Brown, gosh. And it just come into House of Fraser. Oh, yeah. So Rackham's. It was late 90s. Yeah. Ra- oh, Rackham's, I remember yeah. coming to see you um, in there. Yeah. One of the big department yeah. stores, like the really nice big department exactly. store in Birmingham at the time. Yeah. And it was kind of, you know, it was quite a revolutionary brand, really, in the 90s. It was a very yeah. different brand to all the evidence that was out there. And so I, I blacked a job with them. <laughs> so I told them I was a trained makeup artist because that that's what I decided I was at that point. After I'd done the hair show and I'd done the makeup, <laughs> I'd done one makeup look and, and, and had a few, uh, you know, a few positive responses from it. I decided that I now I was a trained makeup artist and that's what I was going to tell everyone. And I thought, you know, and having had no experience, I thought the only way for me to get the experience was to pretend I had more than I had. So I was kind of quite, quite good at um, sort of, elaborating on the truth <laughs> embellishing your uh, portfolio embellishing, embellishing, embellishing the tr- yeah embellishing the facts i've done one makeup and now i was a fully trained well darling that's what makeup is we're embellishing the um the, the natural beauty of a person uh, exactly in, in a literal and a metaphorical sense yeah. absolutely yeah. absolutely and that was so so just to give a little bit of background to what neil's talking about here back in the late 90s mid and late 90s i was living in birmingham where i'd been to university and then we were both ended up working in the same restaurant together bella pasta which is a legendary time chunk legendary. of time in that i mean so many different kinds of people worked in that restaurant and it was just, it was so much fun. It was absolutely wild as well. Yeah. And I made some of my best friends, one of whom I bumped into. How weird is that? Like in a no, Welsh how town. Crazy is that? So weird. <laughs> that was so random. Tram, I was like that to my mum and dad. I'm pretty sure that. So I've just been back to the UK for four weeks to give a bit of background. Me and my mum and dad went out to this little town in Wales, little seaside town in Wales, where Lewis Carroll, who wrote Alice in Wonderland, wrote Alice in Wonderland. They've got this tram that goes up the side of the mountain. It's so random. And I was sitting on the tram and I was looking at the other end and I thought, I know that guy over there. And it was somebody we used to work with in the late 90s there with his husband and his family. So, do you know, when you first messaged me, you said something like, up a mountain, who would have known, something like that. And I thought, at first, because I keep getting all these spam, these hacked accounts. (laughs) (laughs) And because there was no picture, you were sort of indicating, you were indicating something. 
but there was no photographic evidence. So it was like alluding to a photograph, the, the message, yeah. but there was no photograph. And I thought, oh God, has Sarah been hacked <laughs> or something? So I didn't really respond because I thought, well, I don't want to respond and then they can hack me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but then you said the but then you said another message come through with the uh, with the photograph attached to it. And then I was like, oh, my God, that's incredible. Yeah. All the places. Unbelievable. Yeah. We were both just like, what the heck in this little cafe on top of a mountain in Wales? How random. Unbelievable. So random. Anyway, so but yeah. it's all the magic, isn't it, Neil? It's the magic that keeps all us together and it's the magic. That more stories. More, more, layers, more, more, more and stories. more and more stories. Amazing. Yeah. But anyway, so yeah. we, we worked for a year or two in a, in a restaurant called Bella Pasta in the city centre of Birmingham. We have served people like Belinda Carlisle and Jasper Carrot. Do you remember her? She was the funny one. Do you remember her? <laughs> complaining yes. about the um the pasta yes. she said she wanted plain i want plain pasta al dente with a splash of olive oil so i brought it to her and then she beckoned me over and i went over and i said is everything okay and she said no this is really bland <laughs> she said this is really bland i said well it's just pasta and olive oil she said take it away it's just it's bland i was like um okay i'm not quite sure what you want me to do with two ingredients but that's uh that's what it, it is, what it is kind of thing. She was a funny one. Yeah. Oh, God. So many stories. So many crazy people. So many crazy stories. Anyway, let's move on. So it's now time for me to give. You are a total rock star, Neil. A total rock star. And so I want to give you your um, oh. your bio now. Oh, so gosh. Neil Young, originally from Birmingham in the UK, initially trained as a hairdresser and soon began to work within the world of session work. It was whilst on set, he turned his hand to makeup where he discovered his newfound passion and soon after moved to London to embark on his new career. Over the years, Neil has worked with brands such as Mac, Dior, Bobby Brown, Givenchy, Maybelline and Chanel. He's worked backstage across the globe on the biggest shows in fashion, including Altuzara, Balmain, Giles, Missoni, Pucci and Tom Ford, and has headed up shows for designers Stella McCartney, Jonathan Simkai, Hash, Noon by Noor, Fyodor Golan and the charity Oxfam Help End Poverty Show. He also insisted, assisted Val Garland, Tom Pichot and Charlotte Tilbury for several years before becoming first assistant to the world-renowned makeup artist Lucia Pironi. Neil moved to New York to gain international experience and exposure. His work in both London and New York has given him the opportunity to build a diverse celebrity clientele, including... I'm going to pull a few out of here because there's about 50 names on here. So I'll pull out some of the gems <laughs> that you might recognize. Bella Hadid, Ethan Hawke, Florence Pugh, Gillian Anderson, Dame Helen Mirren, Helena Christensen, Hilary Swank, Karen Elson, Kelly Osborne, Kylie Minogue, Laura Stone, Linda Evangelista, House of Evangelista, <laughs> Marianne Faithful, oh my heart, Nicola Coughlin, Pixie Geldof, I mean, Tilda Swinton, Tilda's over here just now, and Yasmin Laban. Woo! Neil has built and grown a solid reputation within the industry. His extensive experience with prestigious beauty brands extends beyond makeup and includes product innovation and development, having worked with German brand Douglas for many years, as well as being appointed brand ambassador for Givenchy Beauty in the UK. 
Ah, Neil Young, I bow at the feet. Who is that person? It doesn't even doesn't even sound like me when you say. I know, isn't it? Somebody asked me to do the eulogy at their um, funeral recently. <laughs> You've got a good, you've got a good tone, the tone and the voice. Oh, yeah. oh, I have to go slowly because there's so many names in there. <laughs> but thank you. I mean, it's just so great. I mean, I love the idea of like touching all these worlds. I know you've been over here to Tokyo for Fashion Week in 2009. And, and a fun fact about Neil is that when I quit my job 10 years ago, Neil had just moved to New York quite recently he had been offered a stellar package with Charlotte Tilbury, which he had turned down so he could be an independent makeup artist, but he was attached mm. to Mac. And at that time, his kind of prime clients were Helen Mirren and Sharon Osbourne, I believe. Yeah, yeah. When she right. was doing the TV panel show there. America's um, Got Talent, yeah. America's Got Talent, exactly. Yeah. And so basically the day after I quit my job, I got on a plane, flew to New York and got a taxi to Neil's beautiful apartment on the Upper West Side. Um, we hung out together a little bit. I think we went for pasta together, did a bit of dancing to Tita Turner, which is the usual. And then he went off to Miami with a good friend. I went to this kind of conference called Rich, Happy and Hot Live <laughs> to start my kind of career as an entrepreneur. <laughs> And then Hurricane Sandy hit. Neil got stuck in Miami and I got stuck in his apartment for like a yeah. week or something, <laughs> didn't we? It's crazy. And time, it was that, just a bit bonkers. But anyway, yeah. so that's the fun fact about, about yeah. you. But you were so useful. <laughs> it's a crazy time. And yeah, sort of, uh, yeah, kind of, um, it was quite, yeah. I mean, I was stuck in, uh, I can't remember where I was staying now in Miami, Mondrian Hotel. All I wanted to do was get back to New York. I know. And also, oh, nice. weirdly, I've been in, I was in, I talk about um, sort of personality development, character development. I was in Miami with a new friend, David, who's actually a very close friend of mine now uh, and has remained since I moved to New York. But I was in Miami for his birthday with a group of other people that I didn't know. And then we got sort of, you know, um, we got stuck in the hotel for 10 days because of Hurricane Sandy. And I mean, talk about character building. It was a really interesting um, phase for me because, you know, being in a place with people you don't know and being sort of thrust into that sort of unique environment, you know, for, for unique reasons is, um, yeah, it's quite an interesting experience, especially for me, you know, because I really struggle with sort of being, I have sort of, um, imposter syndrome a lot. <laughs> Do you know what oh I mean? yeah, so being formal orderly queue. <laughs> Hi. Yeah, yeah, I know, right? <laughs> so yeah, it was just the weirdest thing. So anyway, I had to get over myself very quickly in, in those uh, ten days I was stuck in Miami. But, but can yeah. I just clarify what you mean by that, Neil? So when you say you were, he was your new friend, and you were thrust into this world, you're talking mm. about the super rich, right? Yes. So they were yeah. super rich in the Mondrian yeah. hotels are super... Yeah, it's an expensive hotel. And of course, I had an, I budgeted for a, a couple of nights in Miami, not 10 days. And to be there sort of stuck in an environment with wealthy people and, you know, it was just a very uncomfortable, awkward situation. And uh, not at one point did I get ever feel awkward or they didn't make me feel like that. Everything was happening in my head. But it was just a really challenging time for me at that time, yeah. as well as obviously the obvious that was happening, which was the terrible disaster with the Hurricane Sandy. So it's like, you know, a turmoil exactly. on the outside, exactly. as much as the worst, an internal turmoil, <laughs> do you know what I mean? It was a kind of weird time, yeah. 
was interesting. Yeah. But no, oh, it was, wow. uh, oh, I was relieved. Wow. You must have been so happy to get back to your kind of... Well, I was relieved I was with them because they were amazing. But of course, I was very happy to get back and my apartment was all intact. There's a lot of Manhattan was uh, flooded and everything. Yeah, it was. It, so thank God. Thank God the Upper West Side's quite high up. Exactly. And there was no damage at all to your to your apartment. But I was in there like pulling all the curtains down and pulling all the blinds down so that if the windows <laughs> came in, because the trees were all over the place, then the glass yeah. wouldn't come into your yeah, apartment. Well, you're experienced in that. Exactly, because yeah. the, the year yeah. before I'd been in the earthquake in Japan. Yeah. So I was like, God, am, am I cursed? <laughs> <laughs> bringing all the disasters into places but yeah. yeah there were a lot of people who had a really terrible time mm. and it was just sheer luck that you were up in the upper upper west side their beautiful apartment loved it so Neil let's get into it so tell us about your childhood your upbringing in Birmingham and you know your your kind of family background so um I'm one of four boys I have a twin brother identical right no he's not identical but if you actually saw him no everyone Mm. thinks that and and actually the doctors uh, when we were children couldn't tell us apart either they said it was a unique situation in the sense that we were absolutely to look at identical but genetically not um and they said it must be a gene that separates us because they couldn't tell us apart it wasn't until we sort of hit teenage years that we started to change um structurally facial uh, bone structure started to change, etc. Um, so we're the youngest of the four boys, me and my twin, my mother and father. Um, so yeah, I mean, it was we were working class, working class family. We didn't have a lot of money. Um, grew up on a council estate, you know. And actually, when we first moved to this council estate, it was a brand new council estate. My dad actually helped build the houses, and so it was a completely new sort of um, a new type of housing, I guess, in Birmingham. With, and it felt very sort of optimistic and full of promise. And it backed onto a, a country valley. So it felt like we were living in the countryside, but we were in the city and it was beautiful. And it was protected nature reserve. So there was animals in there and, you know, it was absolutely gorgeous. There's a stream and little lakes in there. Very beautiful. So, you know, for, for sort of 15, 20 years, it felt like a paradise to us. You know, and uh, and it was a new sort of generation of, of housing development in in um, in Birmingham, and we ended up buying the house. My dad had a very good job, and we ended up buying the house. You know, for the most part, it was a happy childhood. It had its challenges. My dad lost his job, and you know, the eighties <laughs> recession and all those kind of things. So it had its challenges, but on the whole, it was a it was a happy childhood. Yeah, but of course, you know, in Birmingham. Growing up in the 80s as a gay man as well, on a council estate, my only focus, my primary focus was to get the hell out of Birmingham as quick as possible. Because it was, it was hard being gay in, 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 that city, in, in Birmingham during that time. It was a very heteronormative environment. And particularly my family, my dad was Irish from a big family and, uh, you know, very masculine, very heteronormative uh, household. And uh, had three very butch masculine brothers. So, you know, being creative and being sort of quite um, effeminate, I guess, in some ways, um, compared to them. I I mean, I wouldn't say I'm I'm an incredibly effeminate man, but compared to my brothers, you know, you could see there was an obvious difference. So, yeah, my focus was to get out. And I dreamt of being in London and I thought that was the only place I would make it, you know, and sort of thrive in and, 
and uh, a place for me to sort of find myself and and become something mm. more than I was. Wow, and you really did as well. So um, happy Pride Month, by the way. I know, thank you. Yeah, yeah and I'm month. so proud of you. <laughs> well, that, I mean, oh, I absolutely <laughs> nothing to do with it, but like, I'm proud to know you. I think is a better is a better way oh, to put it. Sarah. And I'm proud, likewise, of everything that you've done in spite of being gay in a heteronormative world. I think that's a beautiful way of putting it. Just brilliant. How did you find your way through? So, I mean, you know, for me at that time in the 90s and, you know, we, we were talking about this going out to all the clubs, Subway City and the Nightingale, which we used to call the Gale. And then we used to call it the Gay Hole. And then, I know, but many, I, I many mean, this is when you could yeah. smoke indoors and everything. So everywhere was basically a bit of a hole. But um, I, I mean, how was that at that time oh, working well. for Umberto, Umberto Giannini, right? Who then, like, I was surprised because I used to get my hair done there. And then I came, I, of course, I left Japan yeah, yeah. Uh, I left for Japan. And then I'd go home and there'd be all these Umberto Giannini products. And I was like, who used to cut my hair? Yes, they do. I know, they look like vibrators. Don't yes, you? they do. <laughs> Those products look like vibrators. I know. It's quite phallic, quite phallic symbols. Were they on the old shelves of boots? I was like, oh, I'm like, how do you, how do the buyers get past that? Maybe they were women, and they were like, this is a good design. <laughs> yeah. Oh, this yeah, is a, exactly. a double agent, yeah. secret agent man, exactly. And we love that. We love that. So... Never be alone on your holiday. <laughs> Have beautiful hair and a friend. <laughs> No, now it vibrates to get the stuff out. <laughs> yeah, yes, add a battery, add a battery for extra pleasure. <laughs> Head massage. Oh, okay. Um, it's a good job I don't give a shit about my reputation, isn't it? You know. <laughs> <laughs> You're fabulous. Oh dear. So, um, like, how did you do that? Like, so, for, so basically, for me, it just felt like a really great and fun time. But obviously, mm. you were having a different experience of all that at the time. Yeah. Yeah. It was hard. It was hard. It was hard right. because you lived as two different people. You know, I had two identities. I had an identity. Like when I came to work with you guys at the, at the restaurant, it was such a sort of yes. um, non-judgmental environment. There's all work, walks of life working in the restaurant. And exactly. we all kind of, we're a little family and we stuck together, didn't we? And we sort of supported one another and we hung out together and we did all of that. So that was a really nice space to feel safe in. And then, of course, we'd all go out to the clubs as well together. So we had a, a really great social life. So you'd have that work, you'd have that identity. And then, of course, you'd have your other identity because I didn't come out until I was, I mean, I say I didn't come out. Obviously, a lot of people knew, but I didn't come out to my family until I was 23. And so I was, up until then, I was living as, as um, two different people in my mind. It might have been blatantly obvious to some others. They might have just known and never, ever mentioned it, that I was gay or didn't care. It didn't occur to them that it was something to, to be said or spoken about. But of course, growing up in Birmingham, in the area that I lived, it, uh, gradually, as people moved out through the late 80s, 90s, mid 90s, it became a little bit more rough, to say for want of a better word. And, okay. you know, I'd get abused on the yeah. streets and beaten up. And, you know, it was a, it was a yeah. rough place. It was a dangerous place to be. And also Birmingham became quite hostile mm. as well. And, and, uh, uh, and it became quite, a, you know, a difficult place to, to live in. And so for me, I just needed, to, I wanted to get out. I wanted to get out to London as quick as possible. And I thought that was a safer haven for me yeah. to be in. Yeah. A more open-minded 
place. No. Yeah, the bigger the city, the more you can find a you just people don't care quite so much, do they? You're no. just another person on the street, I think. I think so. And also I, I think I don't want to sort of generalize, but I think in bigger cities and in the capital, you know, you've got all yeah. walks of life. You've got people, it's a very transient city anyway, and you've got people from Europe, you know. Yeah. Everyone is just a little bit more normalised to indifference, do you know what I mean? And and it doesn't matter. And also, I think you get absorbed into the city more when you're in a big city with a big population. You don't get noticed as much. Um, Whereas if, you know, in a city like Birmingham at that time, you know, if you wore a blue jacket and everyone was wearing black jackets, you'd be singled out. Yeah, poof, you know, yeah, faggot, just because you look different. It was that stupid, very small-minded and... And I think you could just explore yourself and, and yeah, feel a little bit safer about who you were in, in, in London. And that's why I wanted to get away as quick. I, I moved to London in the late 90s. I did it for six months. <laughs> Thought I'd come down. I was absolutely, completely naive. I had no idea what I was doing. Tried to move to London. Got into loads of debt and ended up having to go back to Birmingham with my tail between my legs. <laughs> and uh sort my debt out <laughs> move back in with my mom and um yeah and i did it again um a couple of years about a year later for six months again and that didn't work and then i ended up coming down in 2004 that was the that was the last the third attempt and i've never never gone back since so what's that 18 years ago yeah. so that's how apart from new york the two and a half years in new york that's how long i've been out of birmingham now yeah. So, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I moved into your old room. Do you remember I mean, that? <laughs> so in, I yeah. do. Oh, I'm so sorry. It was such yeah, it a state. Good. I'd let it get to rack and ruin. It was disgusting. And then you moved into my old room. Yeah. That's right. Because I was, I was living, we were living with our mutual yeah. friend and a, a lovely friend, Max. I hope you're listening yeah. to this. Hi, yes, darling. Max, we love you. And, um, oh, we just had, oh my God, we had such a laugh in that flat. But then you moved into my old room when I moved out in 2001 and then you moved into, I can remember visiting you in a gorgeous flat in the, not in the Chinese quarter, but near where all the Chinese um, nursing homes were. Do you remember there was loads of Chinese nursing homes around there in Digbeth, right? As it was coming up. Now that's an amazing area. Mm. And then you moved to, to London after that I seem to remember um but you I remember you in the in the restaurant you were just so gorgeous and so well turned out I mean, you, oh, you even then you just had much this, hair then yeah you had hair you had like a little kind blonde of blonde hair I had blonde, blonde hair, hair like a little bit of David no. Beckham kind of curtainy kind of look but better than oh, that the good old days <laughs> and even then you you would play with makeup there as well you always had like a good tan we used to have, do you oh, remember yeah. the little joke? The future's bright and Neil is orange. <laughs> yes, I know. Well, I loved a bit of self-tan then, didn't I? Oh my yeah, God. I and a little thought, bit of an eyebrow and a bit of mascara. I know. Oh, no, I never, never wore mascara, ever. Never wore didn't mascara. Didn't you? Oh, no, God, never. it's natural. I've never worn mascara. And I don't yeah. do anything to my eyebrows either. I brush them, brush them off, but I yeah. don't do anything to them. But the, I did used to wear a little, because I had bad skin then as well. I didn't have particularly great skin. Yeah. Well, that's why I wore makeup, really. Um, I mean, mm-hmm. I thought it looked, you know, I thought then it looked quite natural, but it clearly didn't. Because if I'm getting the strap line, the future's bright. The future's Neil orange. Is orange. Neil is orange. You were the one who told me that. <laughs> <laughs> you were the one who told me that. Well, I did like the tan then. And I thought, oh, yeah. also, you know, I was obsessed with, and I had a hairline, so, you know, I could actually stop somewhere. Now when you're bald, you could. You can't really, you know, with the tan, it's a lot yeah. easier to, to tan yourself when you've got a bit of hair. 
but um yeah they were good days weren't they Sarah the, the restaurant days they were but like it's it's also interesting to note that the kind of the difficulty that's going on in the background right yeah. um of all these kinds of things and I'm sure everybody's got a story about that I mean it was good days but it wasn't very healthy either I mean no. we were all playing excessive, pretty hard yeah. weren't we yeah it was excessive and yeah. um but I'm all. I'm glad. I'm glad that I did that in the nineties. I'm glad I've got a million stories to tell. I'm. I'm glad. Yeah, me too. You know. Yeah, me too. It was wild. It was wild. So, so then you moved to London. So who did you move? So, so during that time. So I remember when when I can see you in that flat. You've made these beautiful art pieces. You've always been so so creative, Neil. Yeah. And that's why I wanted to have you on here. These beautiful big brown art pieces, which had like um, I don't know what you'd done with them, but you'd made the the fabric all. Um, crease in a certain way that made these gorgeous art pieces. I can't believe you remember that. Oh, I I remember. Honestly, I can't remember a single sentence in Japanese without thinking about it, but I can remember the details of the things you had in your flat for the one time that I went to it in Digbeth in Birmingham in 2003 or something. It's God. (laughs) So, um, but, and, and also just such a great, and when I came to your apartment, your apartment, which is more like a, a flat. It was in an mm. old brownstone, wasn't it? In, in New York, um, yeah. yeah. West 74th Street, I That's think. Right, yeah. And um, just so like five minutes walk from the river, from the Hudson River. Yeah. I just loved it so much. I pretended I lived there for that time. I was stuck there. I was <laughs> Why like not? That. Yeah. My computer just pretending I live here. I'm Carrie Bradshaw. <laughs> <laughs> but also just had this incredible eye for decoration as well. Like, that I just don't have. I don't have that uh, degree of eye. Like everything was exquisite. Everything was so beautifully done. And um, so where do you think this creative wellspring came from and for the hair and the makeup as well? Do you know what? I don't know. My mom always says to me, I have no idea where you get this creativity from. She said, I mean, my dad used to draw matchstick men and, you know, and animals. He's like, can't draw. Um, My mom can't draw. Uh, My dad, my grandfather was a, a painter so maybe it skipped a generation um yeah. but she said to me she says all the time I honestly don't know where you get it from anything that you do creatively you just like if you start it you 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 know I don't know whether for me it's like anything that I do if I sew if I paint if I do makeup I, I just think well what's the I, I guess a lot of it comes down to the psych, probably the psychological uh, motivations that are driving me. Is that if I'm going to do something, the only way I can be okay is if I'm, if I'm perfect at it. So the only way for me to feel okay is to be perfect. So if I'm going to start something, I can't just be okay at it. I have to be the best at it. Mm-hmm. And so that sort of motivation, that drive, in one in one way, I think you can look at it and think, well, you know, that's really inspirational. Wow, brilliant! But also, it can be quite destructive as well because I kill myself to sort of to be the best. And and as wonderful as that can be, because obviously I've got a I've got a great makeup career out of it. Sometimes it comes at a cost to me, you know, my mental health, if you like, you know, because I'm my own worst enemy at, at the same time. But I think most creatives are. Yeah, I think so. I think I find you could. I think we're our angel and our demons at the same time, you know, and what drives us is also the very thing that sort of breaks us as well. Love that. That's such a great observation, Neil. And I just wonder if you've got, have you got a story about when it's broken you, but also a story about when it serves you to be so thorough and so 
detail oriented? I mean, I put myself under a lot of pressure just with everything. You know, I beat myself up all the time. And in many ways, you know, I think there is a humility within the work that I do. And I'm still humble with what I do. I don't ever think it's good enough. And as sad as that may sound, after 25, you know, 20, 20 odd years, 25 years of doing makeup, I started makeup in the mid, you know, mid to late. 90s you know so what was it 98 when I started doing makeup and I mean I, I had played around with makeup so it's good it's been a good 25 years since I've been doing makeup <laughs> but I never feel satisfied I'm never happy with what I've done you know I can look at it I can enjoy it for a moment but if I look at it for another moment longer I'll start to pull it apart and destroy it and that's how I, that's how I function so it and but then that also spurs me on to want to do it again and to do it better about other people, other onlookers might look at it and be like, it's absolutely incredible, that editorial, that beauty editorial you've done. But at the time I'm doing the beauty editorial for a magazine, I, I'm loving it. I'm in the throes of, of creativity and it's all, you know, it's very fluid and I'm loving it. But by the time it comes to print and it comes out, you know, six, eight, ten weeks later, I, I hate the shoot. I'm like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. It shouldn't have been that. And so, you know, it's a constant cycle of, of highs and lows in my in, in my career. And I don't know whether I'll ever get to a place where I I really feel um, excited and content with what I've done. I don't know whether I'll ever get that. And I don't know whether that is a sort of, you know, that is a sort of um, the curse of a creative mind. I don't know whether we always sort of put it down, but that's what spurs us on. I don't know. Be interesting. Well, Neil, there's a, there's a, the, I mean, it's so interesting you should say this because obviously as a coach, I have to kind of shepherd and steward people through these kinds of things. But I, I'm, I'm going to say Picasso, but it might not be Picasso. It's like mm. um, that um, painters don't finish, they abandon. Mm. And it's the same thing, right? I see a little smile there. Yeah, no, you're actually right. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great word. To and um writers as well they don't finish they don't finish their books they just have to abandon it or Martha Beck another coach mm. calls it the dismount at some point you just have to dismount it's such a great you have to term, get off yeah. the horse and 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 let it be done so perhaps it's more a case of getting comfortable yeah. with knowing that than it is su- suddenly becoming yeah. satisfied with your work because you know I mean it's just well, is it the beauty that attracts you to it or is it that detail? I mean, what do you know? Do you know what it is about makeup or hair or whatever it is that attracts you to that? I guess if I use it on makeup, I just love how well, I've always been interested in color and I love texture. I love the way light sort of activates texture in different ways, in different forms. And for me, because texture is a reflective surface depending on what it is. So from metallics all the way through to just like an oil sheen or whatever. I just love the way sort of light dances around it. It's mesmerizing mm. to me. Yeah. And then if you team that with a three-dimensional canvas, because obviously at school I was, uh, I painted and I was really good at art at school, but I was working in a two-dimensional format. So on canvases, on paper, drawing, whatever, painting. But when I became a makeup artist, to wrap all of those to wrap light and shade around a three-dimensional surface, to me, was so intriguing and so mesmerising. And I think that what a lot of makeup artists do today is that they, they, they make the face two-dimensional. So they blank it out completely. 
make it completely flat. They, you lose every feature on the face and then they reconstruct it in makeup, but there's no face left underneath. It's basically what they want it to be. You mean all the contouring and All the stuff. contouring. So they put it all back with makeup, but there's no sort of respect for the face underneath it. Now, I'm from a generation mm. where, you know, I didn't even have a mobile phone when I started doing makeup. If I wanted to, you know, I bought Vogue magazines. I spent my lunch money at school on Vogue and I'm obsessed because at school I wanted to be a fashion designer. So I'd buy um, Vogue magazines. And every Friday, every Friday of each week, I'd buy Italian, French, British or American Vogue every Friday. That was my thing. So I'd save all my lunch money in the week and starve. And um, and I'd just about afford a, a, a magazine and a snack on a Friday. And, you know, so I was obsessed with magazines and, and looking at imagery. And, and, and for me, going, I had to go to libraries and flick through magazines and books to learn about beauty and stuff like that. Um, but I think today we're living in a, in a culture where um, there's no sort of synergy between the subject and the, the creative, creative um, uh, matter, the materials that we're using, you know, and... And I feel like that's such a shame because my signature with makeup is to just to make somebody look, but ultimately feel as beautiful as they can be. And that's different for everybody. And it's how it transforms somebody internally as much as externally. That's the power of makeup for me. And that doesn't involve 500 products and completely blanking somebody out and then reconstructing their face in, in however I see it because then there's no respect for the face under that. For me, it's about using two products for one face, or maybe it's 10 for another. It's, a, it's about having a bag of ingredients and, and using what's necessary and what's required for each face. And I think it's, for me, it's about really drawing out the beauty in the person that I'm making up. And mm. I think textures and color does that in a way that on a face, for me, that is just mesmerizing, and I just, I, I could just, I get lost in the, like, the, I'm terrible really because I, this is why I never, never good in a retail environment because they want you to talk, 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 you know, like hairdressers are really good. Oh, you're going on holiday, and oh, what have you done the week? You know, while they're cutting hair. Well, I was a terrible hairdresser because I was, I was so mesmerized by the cutting and the, you know, the creation that I couldn't communicate because I needed to be in my world, in my head whilst doing what I was doing. And it's the same with makeup. Like you try talking to me while I'm doing makeup and it's like, you get met with just zero. There's just nothing coming from me because I need to sort of immerse myself in the creative process. I need to be in that world. And it's like, I go off into a world and it's a world that's often a million miles away from the one I'm in, in my head. Does that make sense? Oh, I love it. Yeah. I mean, so I love the way the light activates texture. And I, I'm also a magazine whore. I have 10 years worth of Vogue out there. Um, for it because when I first got here, that's what that was what I did. I collected it. I'd, I'd go to HMV and like, is it here? Oh, it's not here yet. And then I'd go in the next week. Is it here? It's here. <laughs> and just loved it. Well, so I'll, te I'll tell you a story. My my shit of a brother, Paul. <laughs> um, so I from school, so from 1986, so when I was in first year seniors. No, I'm going to cry. I don't know what... <laughs> Go on. So from 1986 to the late 90s, I collected American, British, French and Italian Vogue, right? I had all of them for all those years. When I moved to London for the first time, they were all boxed up 
he skipped them, took them to the skip, thinking he was rubbish. Every single magazine, I know, over 10 years, over 10 years of all of them. So you can imagine how amazing those Vogue's were. It was all Linda in and, you know, Linda Evangelista, uh, Christy, Tatiana, all my favorite supermodels all the campaigns, all the supplements, all the fashion, because back then, without, you know, without um, Instagram and all the other apps that we have now, social media platforms, you used to get the, um, the, the in September, in the September issue and in the March issue, uh, April, sorry, you'd get the show, all of the pictures of the shows from all over the world, from the different collections. So you get the, the fashion supplement that went with it, had all of them. It was just such an incredible... And for me, I, I love paper and I love magazines. I, I can flick through magazines for days. And the smell of paper, magazine paper, print. And I just love all of that. I'm such a visual person. And I, if you ever see, I still have magazines. I've still got some, some from the late 90s when I started again. But I flick through magazines and I do it really fast. I don't sort of, sometimes I don't sort of meticulously go through. I flick through fast and I literally just yeah. dump my mind with imagery, dump, dump, dump. So I don't hook onto any one singular thing, but I fill my mind with just fast imagery so that I, then I let something just emerge. This has come up from, from that process. Oh my God, I've got goosebumps all over my body. Oh. So when I'm doing, when I'm doing beauty shoots and stuff like that, rather than sort of plagiarizing somebody else's work, do you know what I, mean? I um, I'll use, I'll just use that technique just to flick. And it could be an interior book. It could be any book, you know, any visual book that's got colour and texture in it. I just fill my mind with stuff so I can, um, yeah, sort of uh, create something that's a little bit more authentic and a bit more real as opposed to, because often you sort of think you, you think it's your own idea, but actually it's just a stored memory of something. And I think in makeup, especially everyone thinks they reinvent the wheel yeah. with makeup you know but actually what you're doing is you've just you've seen that you know in a vogue on a vogue cover in 2001 and you think you're you know you think you're creating something fresh and modern and completely brand new but actually you've seen it somewhere else before you're just copying it so you know i try not to do that but of course you can't have it sometimes you don't know what's your own memory and what's you know you can't help it and again Every artist steals. There's that's that's another quote from somebody somewhere. It's like there's no, no, no. there's nothing completely unique, but there is that original thing that everybody brings to it themselves. Unless like I won't mention the name, but one of the kind of big makeup young makeup people of of the du jour, she said like I invented wigs. <laughs> <laughs> She's like seventeen or something, and it's like I don't think you'll find that you did actually. <laughs> I invented wigs. It's quite a statement, isn't it? Yeah. I know. Like what? Like no, <laughs> that's absolutely really? not true. Anyway, I don't want to. Yeah. I don't want to bring that those names into this conversation. But what I do want to do is this. So I absolutely love your stories about like the kind of entertainment world and stuff like that. And like I love like you know any of my friends who are involved in in that world, I love hearing their stories. So I was like, oh, have you ever met Madonna? And you were like, yeah. And I was like, oh, are we starstruck? And you still, oh, not really. Actually, I was most starstruck by Linda Evangelista because she had been yeah. such a icon and stuff like that. So what is it about, I mean, so many, especially drag queens love Linda Evangelista. Can you tell us why? What's the, what's the big appeal? I mean, I love her too, but yeah. Well, remember models, they have a sort of, um, models have model-esque 
features and looks, you know? Yeah, I know what you mean. So if you drew a cross on the face, it'd be quite similar. Yeah, they, yeah. they're very similar characteristically, you know? Linda's very different in that sense. Um, she has very wide set eyes. And, and, and actually, there's never been another, and, and they say this, this is a famous, everyone says it, famous saying, quote, that but there'll never be another Linda Evangelista because there's no yeah. one like her. But what I mean by generic with models is that often a lot of models sort of look very similar to one another. And also that's to, to do with geography. So the Russian girls look very similar to each other. You know, um, Eastern European models look very similar, but that's just genetics and, and, and geography, right? But Linda's just a very unique, um, has a very unique face, a bit like Kate Moss. You know, not many Kate Mosses out there. Yeah. But I think with Linda, she, she was a chameleon. So back in the day, she went from blonde, short hair to long, dark hair to a bob to blonde bobs to red hair. She just kept constantly changing her look. And that was kind of quite unheard of in that period, you know, to, for a model to change that much. It was a little bit more um, sort of in line with what actresses did. They often changed them, their character, right. you know, so she she became very synonymous um, in within the industry and around the world as being a chameleon. And, and rightfully so, because she just constantly changed her. I mean, if you think about her in the George Michael Freedom video, which to me is just exquisite with her blonde, short, wedged blonde hair. And she just looks absolutely extraordinary. And then, you know, on the cover of, um, of a Vogue, I think she was shot by uh, Patrick de Marchelio with red hair. Uh, fire engine red hair and you know and she just changed and she just is extraordinary and for me I grew up you know I had a shrine my, my best friend Lucy Evans who was a model she lived around the corner from me and um, we had a Linda Evangelista shrine at her house because obviously in the 80s if I had Linda Evangelista shrine in my bedroom my brothers would be like what the yeah. fuck is that you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? like, hello yeah no. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it disappeared that either be like, well, either, either he fancies her or he's trying to be her. I don't know which one it is, <laughs> probably the latter. Um, and so we had the shrine at her house and every single surface in her bedroom, ceiling, wall, bedroom, every bit of furniture was covered in pictures, tear, tear sheets and pictures that we cut out of magazines of Linda. So to do her makeup, um, it was a real honour. And then several weeks later, I was in Milan doing some shows and she was having pictures taken. She was opening the show. And um, she was very courteously and, and uh, kindly having pictures taken with hundreds of people that like, Linda can have a picture. And I said to my friend, oh God, I really want a picture. And, uh, and he was like, oh, and he knew Linda. And he was like, ask her. And I was like, no God, I'd be mortified. And he was like, Linda, will you have a picture with Neil? And she turned around and she went, oh my God, Neil, so great to see you. Cause I'd seen her a couple of weeks before. And she was like, so great to see you. And she'd come and give me a hug. And we've got a picture together with our heads together and I absolutely cherish it forever, ever in a day. I'll never. Oh my God. That's I know. And she, such a great. And I just, and everyone was looking at me like, Oh my God, she knows him. Like it's really, it's a, it was a real moment. I thought I could have died and gone to heaven. You were like then. that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Me and Linda, <laughs> Jeremy, way back. I think as well, though, Neil, I mean, just there's something that's so special about you, not just the craft and the creativity, but like your personality as well just shines through. And I know that it's, I told you this oh, and I mean it as well. Like, I didn't know what I was doing when I came and stayed with you in New York because I just literally just quit my job. I had, I, I'm like, talk about imposter syndrome and feeling like, 
what the fuck am I doing? That's exactly the space I was in. But listening to you saying, oh yeah, I got made an offer by, I mean, it's in the bio I just read out. So I know you got made an offer by Charlotte Tilbury to join her team full-time and you turned it down so you could be independent. And you were telling me all Mm. this and I was hearing Mm. all these numbers you were throwing at me. And I was Mm. like, wow, this is amazing. And I just wanted to absorb it all. I wanted to absorb your confidence. I wanted to absorb all of it. But you, and you also told me, and I just, I just know I was thinking, God, his personality is so amazing. I wish I had a good personality like that as well. You know, yeah, but, but this is like imposter syndrome, right? I can remember thinking, could I do that? Would I have that? And all this kind of stuff, but you were also telling me about how, and this is really interesting because people think it's the reverse, how in America, People found you too direct sometimes. So you actually had to tone down your Britishness Mm. and turn up this kind of, um, I don't know what you'd call it, something else. Because Mm. people weren't, some people, some people weren't responding to you very well. Obviously, somebody like Sharon Osbourne is going to love you because Mm. her husband's from uh, Birmingham and they just keep it real. Somebody like Helen Mirren also going to love you because Mm. she's just very down to earth, I think, and keeps it real. So, you know, how, how was that like moving to, you'd established yourself, sorry, you'd established yourself as a very in-demand, highly reputable makeup artist in the UK. You're turning down these big offers Mm. and you decide to throw caution to the wind and move to New York. What, tell me more about all of that period of time, 10 years ago. I think, do you know what? I think, because I'd worked with Charlotte for years on the show. Charlotte Tilbury. um, Charlotte Tilbury, yeah. yeah. And we had a great relationship. And then when she um, started her brand, yeah, I consulted with her on the brand. So from the very uh, grassroots, I consulted on what products look like, what formulas, uh, along with her product development um, director. So we worked together on, on, on various things. And Charlotte wanted me to be a part of the team. and But, you know, the thing for me was I was at a, a pivotal point in my career where I just really needed to know whether I could make it on my own as a name as a brand as Neil Young makeup rather than I think I'd just spent too long feeling like I was elevating other people and I didn't want to continue to stand in the shadows of other people why they extracted the best of me but I wasn't recognized for it you know other than to to be a part of their brand and I think I just reached a point where that wasn't um, an option for me anymore. And that's why I turned that down with Charlotte and decided to move to New York. And I worked with the product development and I knew with Mac in, in New York. And of course, I did my role, did makeup and everything else for the brand. But it was a, it, it was an exciting time for me to work alongside um, product development and work closely with them because I knew at some point in the future that it would come in handy for me. And so for me, it felt like a sidestep. Not a sidestep, because it was definitely a step forward. But coming from the back of the offer with Charlotte, maybe there was a part of me that was a bit reluctant, even though I felt like it was the right thing. My gut was telling me, do this. I'd always wanted to live in New York. And I just felt like this was the ideal opportunity to go and do it. And I thought, you know what? England is still going to be there when I get back. So is Charlotte. So there are the opportunities. But you just got to take a chance. And I did. And I took it. And it was an amazing two and a half years. It was incredible. And of course, the product development was amazing and that insight into uh, formulating and innovation and all those things did end up becoming a very valuable tool for me because I ended up becoming, uh, you know, ambassadors for, an ambassador for a brand in Germany. 
but I did a lot of product innovation and, and development with them. So, and I got the, got the role with them. Uh, and when I say ambassador, you know, it's a contract. It's like 35 days throughout the year that you do. So I was still doing my freelance work, but I would consult with them for 35 days of the year on, on new products, new formulations, rewriting terminology for them, um, training, all that kind of stuff. So it ended up being the right move. Yeah. At the time, of course, you go into these, you jump off the ledge, don't you? You don't know whether you're going to, the parachute's going to open or not. Thankfully for me, the parachute opened and, you know, and it was great. But of course, at that time, I still didn't know where I was going to land with it all. But it eventually landed in the, in the right place a few years later. So sometimes you just got to take a leap of faith in life and you just don't know where you're going to land with stuff, with decisions. And you don't necessarily see the return immediately on, on decisions that you make. But you've got to have the faith that at some point in the future, it's going to, it's going to, it will have worked out for the best. And you're, you're oh, yeah, you definitely, you do, don't you? Because subconsciously, you sort of, you don't know, yeah. but you are engineering a lot of your own destiny it, subconsciously. It's, it's just a process that you're, you, you may not be aware of it, but you, the decisions that you're making are, are steering you. I mean, you can believe what you want. I don't believe in sort of, you know, um, some invisible energy in the world that's pulling you in the right direction. You are driving your own destiny. It's an invisible car and it's a subconscious path that you're driving, you know, that you're driving down. And I think that's the beauty. Yeah, I love it. And there's so much in what you've just said there. And and I'm so grateful to you at that time. You, you know, you were a few years on from me in terms of, you know, being your own boss kind of thing and making your own luck and so on. And I can remember you saying, talking to me and saying, yeah, and I named my price with Mark because I wanted them to match and get, you know, and give me more than the shot mm. off which and all this kind of thing. I was like, lap it. Like I was just like wide eyed, like, oh my God. And, you know, from a coaching perspective, that's kind of, that's having mentors or guides show up for you. So mm. yeah, you're, you're mm. in this invisible car and then people show up and they start giving you information. Now, to, to anybody else, it might just look like two mates catching up over bolognese in, you know, <laughs> the upper west side of New York. But to me, it was like one of those things where I was like, yeah, I'm in exactly the right place with exactly the right person at exactly the right time. This is so good. Mm. So, you know, thank you for being a mentor and a guide to me as well at that time. Aww. So what was a highlight of your time in New York? Can you think of a highlight? I know you were also flying out to Los Angeles a lot that time as well, but what was a highlight or a challenge that you overcame? Do you know, I mean, I hate, weirdly, even though I'd always wanted to live in New York, for the first year, I absolutely hated it. I thought I'd made a big mistake. I really struggled. And I think, you know, New York is a brutal, a year in New York doing all of the seasons is intense. Winters are brutal. Summers are horrendous. Fall and spring are, joy, are a joy. And I think once you've navigated the four seasons in New York and you've got through them, you can sort of relax and take a, you know, an exhale. And I remember coming in from LA and I was flying, because uh, uh, when you fly from LA, you fly into LaGuardia Airport, which is the top of Manhattan. Yeah. And you fly from the Trade Center, you know, all the way up over Manhattan. And it was a really clear night and it was sort of late summer. And um, so I'd done just over a year. No, sorry, it wasn't. It was early summer because I'd done just over a year. So it was like early June-ish. It was a really clear night. And I remember looking out the window on the plane and I remember thinking, oh, my God, I'm flying home and this is home. 
And it was like, the, it was like suddenly this realization it took me a year to sort of acknowledge it. And that's when I f- absolutely fell in love with New York after that, that first initial year. And also a friend of mine had, had been diagnosed with cancer in that first year. So I was grappling with that fear of losing him. He was one of my best friends. And so it was a tough year that first year. And then he was doing good, thank God. And I'd had treatment and was doing great. So I think I'd sort of let go of something and then was able to sort of focus on what I had, what was there. And and in that moment, when I looked down on Manhattan, it was all lit up beautifully. And it was, bus, you know, it's the cars and the cabs and the red lights. And it was just amazing. And I remember thinking, well, I literally live on a movie set. I live on a movie set and I'm going home. I love that. I get that too. I mean, here I live in the hills now, but I still look around and I'm like, I think this is lovely. Like I can see the hills out of my window now, but I used to get the same thing. Yeah. So remember when you came to Tokyo, we went to that restaurant up a hill, like I took his yes. place called Lego yeah. Hill, but that was in like the, this, what we call Scramble Square, that big famous crossroads. So sometimes yeah. I would like cycle down there on my bike. And I call it a National Geographic moment. So, you know, when you're like, I live inside National Geographic. And I, I still get that exactly. now when I'm in yeah. Shibuya with all the TV screens and all the people and stuff running across. I'm like, yeah. I just, or, no, I wouldn't cycle there now, but then I would be like, I just cycled here just to yeah. pop to the shop. Or like, I live yeah, crazy. here. It's so cool, isn't it? And London as well. I love London, like walking around London. I'm like, oh, yeah. love it. Love it. Love no, it. London's great. I mean, of course, I live. I made my two equal loves, London and New York. So, yeah. yeah. And I've, I've lived in both of them. So, uh, bring us up me. to date then, Neil. So, you know, obviously, you came back to London, you established yourself there as a very, you know, in demand and yeah. high profile makeup artist. Yeah. You're, you're in the top 100, by the way, top, or maybe it's the top 50 makeup artists in the world. Yeah, because I Googled you, right? So, <laughs> and then. COVID hit, and then you decided to take an interesting turn, but just fill us in a little bit on that, and then we can talk about what the future holds for you. Yeah, so um, so obviously COVID hit, and, you know, as a makeup artist, you know, high contact industry. Oh, we yeah, because you like that, aren't you? Yeah, we were screwed. And then, then I was equally screwed a little bit more because, you know, being a man um, who doesn't do their own makeup, I was stuck, I was I'm screwed. Ah, so you're not going to be doing uh, online tutorials and stuff. Exactly. So right. what happened was all the all the female artists or guys that did their own makeups just carried on doing their own makeup. Or if you wasn't somebody that did your own makeup, they started doing their own makeup and added this completely new dimension to their career. So started like your James Charles just, kind of thing. Exactly. Star doing self kind of, yeah. yeah. Self-application, YouTube, Instagram, Insta stories, all those kind of things. Yeah. And they worked nonstop because brands were just throwing money at these people That's because correct. that was their advertising. So I missed out on all of that. And, I, you know, at 47, nearly 48 years of age, I'm not going to start doing my own makeup at this point in my career either. It's not really my thing. And no one wants to see this mosh on their screen either. <laughs> <laughs> actually, I, I do. I can't even do my own makeup. I'm absolutely useless. I'm like all fingers and bums and completely petty. Um, so after the first, during the summer, so in the summer of um, the first year of COVID, when we were able to um, start seeing people in parks and things, I met with a, one of my close friends, Will, who's a psychotherapist. And I met with him for a lunch in a park. And I was like, I need to do something. I've got to do something different. 
And I turned to him and I said, oh, do you know, what? I've always been fascinated by therapy. And, uh, and he went, you'd be a brilliant psychotherapist. He went, you should do it. And I was like, do you think I would? I said, I've always been fascinated. Maybe I should look into it. And he said, I'll tell you what, he said, on, this was like on the Wednesday. He said, on Friday and Saturday, there's a, a transactional analysis 101 course happening online. He went, do you want me to see if I can get you on the course? It's like 180 quid or something like that. And so I was like, okay, so he makes a phone call to the course leader. She's like, well, it's full, but, you know, he's a friend of yours. We'll, we'll get him on it. Within 48 hours, I'm on the 101 course on the Friday. So I'm doing this transaction analysis course. And honestly, it was, I, and I've always been fascinated. I always read books about the brain, the mind, sort of self-awareness, kind of, you know, I, I'm interested in it. I've always been interested in it, having done therapy in my own 12 years ago. So I, I understand the power of great therapy. And so I, I did the 101 course, was so surprised how much I loved it. And I decided to take the course. So two months later, I'm on a, on transactional analysis um, foundation year. And so I did psychotherapy for a year. And it was honestly the most eye-opening, mind-opening year of my life. It was fascinating. And I do want to continue doing it. It's just, it's been a challenge for me to, um, I had to stop the second year. I had to, I had to take a year out because the second year required yeah. so much time. And having gone through COVID, uh, the, the two years of pandemic without touching a face, not a single job, not one job, I drained my entire life savings and I'm having to start again. So I'm just not financially in a position to be able to, um, commit to the course I've got to rebuild the clients again and not re-establish because a lot of my clients are in Europe Sarah and so of course I lost a lot of those clients I'm having to re-establish new clients in the UK mm-hmm. and, and do less traveling so I'm trying to engineer a little bit more of um, a bit more structure to my time in the UK so that I can pick the course up again um, I was hoping to start it again in October this year, but I, I don't think it's going to happen this year again. But I've done the foundation, I've done the qualifying hours, I've done everything, so I can pick it up, you know, I can pick the, the, the preceding three years up again um, at a later date, but it's fascinating, I loved it, absolutely loved it. You've just got such business savvy, Neil. I mean, you've just used that word engineer again, and, um, and you know, it's the, you, you've got such vision. I mean, you know you were talking to me saying how much you love the psychotherapy and you'd love to pick it back up again in the future. But that what you needed as soon as the lockdowns were lifted was you needed faces to work on so you could start earning money again. So yeah. you're engineering this way in the future that you can maybe do both at the same time, but have to build the business back up first. I mean, you've got such an astute business mind. I, I really, really find that so um, fascinating and so, so brilliant. I don't think you know how brilliant you are at this. And from those conversations we had 10 <laughs> years ago as well. <laughs> I don't feel brilliant. No, but That's you not... are. You are. It's like, it's, it's such a great small business mind. It's such an entrepreneurial mm. way of looking thing, at things. It's kind of putting all this stuff together and being really mm. savvy about it and asking for what you need and charging what you want and, and things like that. It's amazing. And of course, you've got a mortgage and you found love a few, four years ago as well, didn't you? So you've. Yeah, Richard. Yeah. yeah. So you've got you living now with your darling. Oh, it's great. And the thing is, the nature of my work is that you are sort of, I have an agent, of course, but I also, you're on hold, you're being, your time is being held by clients constantly. 
and you'll get confirmed for the job sometimes two days sometimes literally four hours uh, you know like 10 o'clock the night before the job you'll get confirmed for the job now at my age that's not a way to live and certainly if I'm trying to no. do a course that requires me to take clients for psychotherapy you know I, I need some consistency in my life and so as much as the the makeup career has been wonderful and exciting and the opportunities it's presented has been amazing for the last 25 years I am in a constant state of anxiety, waiting to know whether I'm working, whether I've got the job, whether I'm going to go to this, you know, this job, that job. It's just, you never really know where you are. And I think what I really require in life is some more stability, which is why I'm sort of diversifying a little bit. And that's really important to me. Yeah. Love it. Love it. Love it. And again, this is something we talked about before is um, there's this real ethical streak that runs through you as well, which I was I just felt so humbled by as well, which is you can't at the at the moment, you can't take clients on who may yeah. have attachment issues yeah. and so on and say to them, I'm sorry, could we move your appointment? Because that could yeah. be really damaging to their mental health and their yeah, stability. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. So maybe in the future, a few years down the line, you'll have your practice mm. and then Monday, Tuesday mm. or whatever will be like that psychotherapy day. And you don't take any makeup clients on on those yeah. days, but you're able to you're able to pack your schedule mm. in those days mm. that makes kind of financial or, you yeah. know, fiscal sense to you as yeah. well. Commercial yeah. sense. I love that about you, Neil. I mm. love this savvy you have. I love this engineering mind that you have. It's, it's so cool. So speaking of where you get your, where your, um, your clients. So before we wrap up, I'd just love to just touch on the fact that you've been selected as Nicola Coughlin's soul makeup like soul makeup artist now haven't you now for those of you who are thinking who's Nicola Coughlin she's in Derry Girls the funniest yeah. one in Derry Girls and she's also um one of the lead characters in Bridgerton in fact the lead character in Bridgerton Lady really yeah yeah she's lead. Lady, Lady what's her name Wait, Lady, Lady Whistledown her character is Penelope Featherington but her, yes. her alter ego is uh, Lady Whistledown who's the, the gothic columnist you know so she's, yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. The she's gossip the girl. girl. Yeah, exactly. The old school gossip girl. <laughs> and um, do you want to just tell us about how you? I mean, I when I see her and and I see her interviewed and I and she's got she's she's Irish as well, which of course creates that strong connection as well. I can see like, of course, of course, she's going to be working with Neil. I always think that about like anybody who's got like some. I don't know. There's just, I just know, I mean, you're, you're really good at, uh, at being with anybody across the board, but I just kind of can tell why people would be attracted not only to your craft, but also to you as a person, because you spend a lot of time in people's faces, right? Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah. Um, but um, yeah. do you want to just tell us about your relationship there and, and what that's meant to you? She, she's amazing. I mean, I, I worked with her for the first time at the very start of, of COVID actually. And then obviously we went into lockdown and so I worked with her for a Graham Norton show, did it for an appearance on Graham Norton. And then we went into lockdown and um, as soon as the lockdown, the first lockdown lifted, I ended up working with her on a, a couple of editorial shoots, photo shoots for magazines. And then we haven't really stopped working together since. And um, she's just amazing for me. She's, uh, she's a really 
obviously she's a fantastic actress but she's just an absolute diamond to work with she loves makeup she loves exploring she loves playing being experimental so she just lets me have free reign she's you know and, and I think she enjoys it as much as I love creating it so it's a perfect synergy um, and I think all makeup artists want a client like that and to get to work with an actress that loves to dress up and play with makeup as much as she does um, it's a real, it's a really unique ex, um, experience and a real joy for for me as a makeup artist and as a person because um, she's just open to everything and she's just a scream. She's fun, you know, and um, yeah, she's cool. She's really cool. Of course, she's got all the Irish charm in the world, hasn't she? You know. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, she's just a. And she's just got a contract with Pat McGrath. Pat McGraw as Pat well, McGrath, hasn't yeah, she? She's, um, so she, Pat McGrath did her collaboration with Bridgerton and uh, had uh, Nicola was one of the faces. And of course, I um, supported Pat, Pat McGrath and Nicola through that contract, um, which was great. So I worked with Pat for three months and Nicola. See, that's it. my that's my starstruck moment right there. Like, so, you know, you know I, I see Val Garland commenting on your, uh, oh, lovely darling, and all this yeah, kind yeah. of stuff on your on your Instagram at Neil Young Beauty. Yeah. Um, and, and that's kind of like, what, what's, her, what's her thing? Ding dong. Ding dong, right? darling. <laughs> that's yeah. her... <laughs> but like for me, yeah. Pat McGrath. She's the mother. She's the like, yeah. She's like, she's like, does she, does she even exist? She's like a an ethereal fairy or something so when you're talking about yeah. her i'm like yeah she's cool yeah she's uh, <laughs> i mean of course pat's pat's like the mother of mother of all makeup artists she you is. know there's, there's no pat there's no other pat McGuire. so beyond yeah no it's really cool it's great to work with them yeah beyond and yeah of course i keep my eye on her all the time because of your association with her and she was just like the darling of the golden globes and stuff recently wasn't she so yeah. um Neil, we're going to wrap up now. It's been an absolute delight talking to you. I've got about a million other questions. I'm like, oh, we didn't talk about that. We didn't talk about your tattoos. We didn't talk oh. about your <laughs> therapy 12 years ago. We didn't talk about this, that and the other, but I'm I don't so care bad. because it's just been such a joy talking to you. I oh, love your bye. energy. I love the way you engineer your life, but also have this kind of, you know, this way with you that pulls people towards you. I love your craft and your skill and your creativity and your honesty and your authenticity. I will love oh, you forever. You. And um, you. I just appreciate, I've loved doing I appreciate this. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh, <laughs> so my closing question is, yeah, there are many ways to lead a life. What does that mean to you? I would have to say authentically, and truthfully it's as simple as that because um yeah for me as a gay man it has to be authentically and truthfully yeah oh i love it authentically and truthfully and as a gay man yeah and that's why pride is so important because there's just all those extra things that what's the saying um don't try and be somebody. What's the, what's the saying? There's a really brilliant saying. Is it the world of heterosexuals anyway, is a sick and boring it. place, or is that divine? <laughs> yeah, oh, that's the one. Yeah, took the words right out of my mouth. <laughs> be yourself, because everyone else is taken, maybe or something like that. But no. no, but I do have a famous. I do have a quote that I do actually live by, and it's this one. And it's if you always do what you always did, you'll always get what you always got. Love it. To think about that for a while because I live by it when I'm trying to make yeah. a decision and I think just if you keep doing this, 
you know you're gonna get yeah you're gonna always get what you've always got you know exactly so, so and that would even go to like do something i know different. you're off to the gym you're off to the right. gym now aren't you so if you keep doing yeah, exactly. that if you keep doing it you're gonna get muscles <laughs> if you keep doing that you're not gonna be as effective as you might be <laughs> i know exactly yeah. the door's ringing i better go and get the uh, parcel all right then, my, bye. My See you. Thanks, lovely. Bye. I love you, Sarah. Thanks so much. Thank bye. you. Love you too. Bye. Thank bye, you very bye, much. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to this latest legend on the Sarah Furuya Legends podcast. Hop over to sarahfuruya.com where you can find the full complement of uh, Legends interviews and conversations. Also, you can like and subscribe over on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts. I absolutely love these interviews and these conversations I have with these people. I don't care about subscribers, if I'm absolutely honest. It just helps to get more people over to listen to these fantastic people. I cannot wait for my next interview. I really hope you can get stuck in and find some juice and some delightful little nugget of knowledge or encouragement from these that will help you to create your story and to take your story forward and to weave and dream up and high dream your own story. Buoyed up by the stories of these people, I would call them ordinary, they're not. But these people, these beautiful legends who I've selected to help you on your way and to help me on my way. So please enjoy, share, subscribe. My Facebook page is Sarah Furuya Coaching. My Instagram page is at Sarah Furuya Coaching too. So get into it. Thanks. Bye.